0: Um, This morning, we're we're continuing our series through uh, the names of God and why they matter. And I'm just going to be completely honest with you this morning that, and my wife can attest to this, that that writing my sermon this week was a real challenge. (laughs) Uh, It was one of those where I I started on Tuesday and I still hadn't written basically anything by Friday. Uh, and, And I don't know. And then something's come out of me. And so we'll see what the Lord wants to do with it this morning. It wasn't where I wanted to go. It wasn't where I thought we were going. But this is where we're going. So let's, uh, let's pray together that the Lord will, will do a work today. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for your presence in this place. Lord, I thank you for the hearts here. I thank you for the men and women here who know you. and Lord, that you, as we just sang, you are our great redeemer that you, you lift us up out of the pit of despair and you put our feet on a solid rock. Lord, that you give us a new song to sing, a song of praise, a song of worship to you. Father, that you give us a life of, of purpose and, and Father, that we just get to spend our days in your presence, and honoring you and bringing glory to you. Lord, as we Look at your word today. I pray that you would do a work in our hearts. I genuinely don't know what you want to do this morning, Lord, and so we just give it over to you. May we be, be faithful to what you speak to us and, and Father, I just I pray your blessing over your people today. I'm just so grateful for each one. Thank you, Lord for loving us. Thank you for your patience and your mercy and your grace. Oh, Father, we ask that you be glorified in here. We ask that you have your way. And Holy Spirit, speak to us and fill us afresh. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, two Wednesdays ago, um, as Kate mentioned, we, we gather every Wednesday for prayer between 12 and 1. And there's a group that gathers pretty consistently uh, every, every Wednesday for that hour. And a couple of Wednesdays ago, while we were praying, Dorothy actually prayed something and used a specific word that, that really has stuck with me since she said it. Dorothy, Dorothy said that there was a, a groundswell that was happening in our midst. Um, a groundswell is this, this sudden and, and rapid gathering of force. It's a word that's often used to describe uh, a, a sudden movement of the ocean uh, caused by an earthquake or a storm. It's, it's something that starts really deep under the surface of the water, and it gathers force until it finally breaks through the surface of the water and forms large swells or waves that often have significant power. And... The reason why Dorothy's prayer has resonated with me is because it it describes in a word picture kind of what I've been feeling has been happening and occurring in our congregation and in our gatherings together that I believe that there's this gathering force. That's forming and consolidating under the surface right now. It hasn't broken out yet, but it feels like there's this large swell that's forming, and I'm praying that it's going to come to the surface. I know that that many of you, many of you in this place have been experiencing a renewed yearning for the Lord, a a growing desire in your hearts to see the Lord move in power in this place. There's this, this holy discontentment that's kind of growing in God's people and in the men and women here who believe that there's more from the Lord for us in this place and I want to tell you that I'm right there with you believing that and I'm confidently expecting the day will come when we will see this this ground soil that breaks through the surface and kind of pours over all of us and I pray that through it the Lord brings with it revival. Over the last year, Timothy Keller has written a series of four articles in an online publication called Life in the Gospel. In the first two articles in this series, he outlines the reasons for the decline of the Protestant church that's been occurring across North America. He, in his first article, he focuses on the decline of mainline Protestantism. And he concludes it's been caused mainly by their capitulation to the ways of the world. Marked most notably by their capitulation to the LGBTQ agenda, the social justice movement, and embracing the different worldly philosophies that are all over the place right now. In his second article, then, Keller focuses on the decline of evangelicalism. And he concludes it's been caused by the opposite shift. While while mainline Protestantism has gone too much to be too much like the world, evangelicalism has shifted far to the right to a sort of fundamentalism that had arose back in the 1940s, which involves kind of removing ourselves from much of the world, no longer engaging with it in any meaningful way with our Christian ethics, kind of like building a wall around a cult, trying to keep everything out and keep everything in. And then in the last two articles, he talks about the path and the power to renewal for Jesus' church. What needs to happen for the churches to recover? And he says, basically, we need a revival that only God can provide and a movement to capture the fruit of that revival for the renewal of Jesus' church. In some circles of Christianity, there is... Consistent talk of revival amongst God's people. And it's often paired with an effort by men to usher in a revival. And while I believe what Timothy Keller says in this article is true, I believe a revival is needed amongst God's people. I don't believe men have the power to usher it in. What we can do is we can ready ourselves to receive it from the Lord when and if He sends it. A perfect analogy for this concept is what we looked at on Friday, if you were here in Second Chronicles 20. We, we, we looked at the fact that when the people of Israel were attacked by their enemies, God told them, stand firm, hold your position, and they sang praises to God, and then He brought the victory for the people. I think of something similar. Another example is 1 Kings 18, the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Elijah built an altar to the Lord. He prayed, he had faith, but it was God who sent the fire down to burn up the altar. And so there are things that Christians must do to prepare for revival, but whether or not it comes is wholeheartedly a move of God. And so believing that, I want you to know, I don't speak of it lightly. Because I think it can breed false expectation. I never want to blow smoke up here. But I will say that over the last few months, I have not been able to shake this 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 ember, this kind of glowing hotter and hotter within me, this yearning to see a fresh outpouring of God's life giving spirit upon his people. And I don't think it's just me thirsting for that in this place. I think many of you here would would say the same thing. And this this increasing hunger has actually been paired with a number of prophetic utterances from different people shared independently of one another saying basically the same thing. That these walls won't be able to contain what the Lord does here. That it will overflow from this place. And so I hope that the Lord brings renewal because I think Jesus' church desperately needs it. For too long, I think many of God's people, specifically in our culture, have been just doing Christianity, as opposed to living as disciples of Jesus Christ. And when I say that, I'm not talking about salvation, but rather I'm referring to a sleeplessness that has come over God's people. And I've been trying to put this into words well this week so I can explain it. So what I mean by, by doing Christianity is living a type of faith that is marked almost entirely by performing the corporate aspects of Christianity while experiencing very little transformation flowing from those activities into our daily lives. A person's life who is merely doing Christianity will always be marked with a separation between what we claim to believe and live on a Sunday morning, what we claim in small groups or gatherings with brothers and sisters in Christ, and how we actually function in the rest of our life. There will be a compartmentalizing of our faith where we believe wrongly that there are so-called appropriate times to live it out and other times to leave it at the door, almost like a hat that we put on and take off. And these decisions as to when we should wear our Christian hat and take off our Christian hat will be determined not by the Spirit of God, but by our own flesh. And our decisions will be rooted... In the fear of man, the desire for comfort, and the avoidance of opposition. And when this describes the life of a follower of Christ, it is a symptom of a life that has become apathetic in spirit, that has become sleepy that may love God, that may love His Word, that may know what is true, but needs to be renewed by the Spirit of God so that our life touches more than just ourselves. If we did a survey through the New Testament, we would find no commands from Jesus anywhere that come close to, you shall live a comfortable life free of opposition. In fact, I would say we would more readily and consistently find the opposite, wouldn't we? The warnings of Jesus and the teachings and the epistles land much more on the side that the world is going to hate us. Our lives will face opposition. Our lives will face discomfort. They will face hardship. And that it is actually through these things, the path to life is marked 2 Timothy 2:12 If we endure we will also reign with him if we deny him he also will deny us Romans 8:17 And if children then heirs heirs of God fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him Acts 5:41 Our groups are in Acts right now. We're getting to this verse. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. 1 Peter 4, 12, 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice far as you share his Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I find too many followers of Christ in North America are surprised. Yeah. But, Whoa, why is this happening to me? And we shrink away. think mean, This is not what should be happening. No, this is exactly what should be happening as a follower of Christ. Because you're not of this world. A life of doing Christianity will never see this kind of suffering because it doesn't ultimately demand very much from us. It's often very individualistic. It's set apart from the world. It's even set apart from other brothers and sisters in Christ. It's focused largely on head knowledge that puffs us up instead of heart knowledge that transforms us and pours out. It's a faith with very little works. It's Christianity that is half asleep and needs to be revived. In contrast to merely doing Christianity... An individual living appropriately as a disciple of Jesus will not compartmentalize their faith, knowing that at all times it is appropriate to be marked by it and live it out. They will know that faith is not merely a garment that can be put on and taken off in certain circumstances. It is our entire life. We live by faith. Living as a disciple of Jesus means there won't be a separation between what we claim to believe and live on Sundays or in small groups and how we function in the rest of life. It means we will take part in the corporate gatherings of Christianity, absolutely, but they are not the be-all, end-all. They are catalysts for transformation which flows into our daily lives and then out into the world around us. This kind of living as a disciple of Jesus, not merely doing Christianity, but being wide awake in faith. The Apostle Paul would refer to as walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Ephesians 4.1. Which is a command to walk appropriately as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And interestingly... This exhortation from Paul is even more powerful when you consider where Paul wrote it from. Paul wrote these words, he said, when he was a prisoner for the Lord. He was in chains for Jesus. And it was because his daily life was wholly transformed by Jesus. It was filled with the things of God and those who were of the world could not abide with it. Paul certainly was not compartmentalizing his Christian faith. He was living as a disciple of Jesus at all times, in all places, as he preached Christ with his lips and his life. And Paul urged the Ephesians to, to walk as he was walking in a manner worthy of their calling. But, but there was something that caused Paul to walk in this way. Something that spurred him on to such a vibrant faith. Because Paul was a sinful man like every single one of us in here. It's not as though Paul had some special powers that are not available to us. And so what happened to Paul that he lived this way so consistently. Well, when Paul urges the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of their calling, he begins his plea with the word, therefore. Intending them to remember what he had said previously before giving this exhortation to them, which happens to be what he wrote at the end of chapter 3 in Ephesians. At the end of chapter 3, Paul writes a prayer. And he prays that the Ephesians would know the riches of God's glory. That they would know the power that is found in God's Holy Spirit. That they would know the closeness of Jesus Christ, the love of Jesus, the fullness of God, and the power that was at work within them. These are things that Paul came to know. These are things that Paul had laid hold of in his own heart, in his own life. And they spilled over into every aspect of his life, his actions. So he prayed the same thing for the Ephesian church. Let's read his prayer. Verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You know how we said last week that Moses interceded on the hill and that brought victory to the battle on the ground? Right? It, was, it was won in the supernatural, not in the natural. Well, when Paul prays here, he is praying in the same spirit as Moses. He knows the Ephesians can't come to know these things on their own. They can get the head knowledge of it, but they can't bring it into their hearts to cause transformation. That must come from the Lord. And so Paul is praying essentially a prayer of revival here. He recognizes it is a move of God that will cause his people to know these truths in a way that transforms their lives to walk in a manner worthy. He says at the beginning of his prayer, may he grant you, may he grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit so that all of these things may be known to you. Paul is interceding for the Ephesians like Moses interceded for the Israelites, knowing the Lord has to do it. It comes through the power of his spirit. The reality is you can study all you want. You can read commentaries. You can read books. These are all excellent things to be done by followers of Christ. But you can know the love of of Christ in your mind. You can know the power of God. You can know all the things Paul talks about. But unless the Spirit brings that knowledge in a transformative way, it will just stay up here. And it will not pour out of you. Because you aren't truly filled with it. Because it hasn't transformed you. And so it goes back to what we talked about last week. It's prayer. It's the power of God over the life of an individual. It's great that you read. It's great that you look at commentaries. It's great that you're in books. But if that's it and there's no relationship with the Lord, there's no seeking the Lord, there's no desire for these things, there's no interceding like Moses, there's no spiritual life, then it's never going to transform you. We need to pray and we need to seek and we need to ask because it is the Lord who grants that to us. See, even God's people who are born again, who are living with the power of the Spirit within us, we drift from the Lord, don't we? Right? If you've been a follower of Jesus for any amount of time, you know that to be true. True. In our struggle with the flesh and sin that remains at times and in seasons, we become listless, we become distracted, we are forgetful, we are indifferent toward the things of God. And as the one who is the giver of all life and faith, God needs to bring us back from our spiritual lethargy. And that happens through a fresh outpouring of his spirit. It's what Paul prays for. It is a revival. It is a renewal of these truths that transform our lives. John Piper writes about revival in the history of the church. He says, In the history of the church, the term revival in its most biblical sense has met a work of God In which many Christians have been lifted out of spiritual indifference and worldliness into conviction of sin, earnest desires for more of Christ and his word, boldness in witness, purity of life, lots of conversions, joyful worship, renewed commitment to missions. I long to see them. I long to see all of those things. The history of God's church has shown that where revival comes over God's people, there will be faithful preaching of the word of God. There will be unceasing prayer. I cannot think of a move of God that did not start without a group of Christians persevering in prayer, pleading with him to do it. There will be deep unity. As urgency over our calling grows and time for theological arguments about ultimately inconsequential things will fall away. There will be prevalent repentance. Men and women will get right with God. When revival happened in Korea in the early 1900s, it was marked by repentance. William Blair, who was an American missionary in Korea, he wrote, the Christians returned to their homes, taking the fire with them. It spread to practically every church, schools, Cancelled classes for days while students wept out their wrongdoings together. We had our hearts torn again and again by the return of little articles and money that had been taken from us over the years. All through the city, people were going from house to house, confessing wrongs, returning stolen property, not only to Christians, but to non-believers. A Chinese merchant was astounded to have a Christian walk in and pay him a large sum of money he had obtained unjustly years before. The whole city was stirred. The cry went out over the city. Repentance will be prevalent Families will be restored. There will be powerful signs and wonders. There will be a renewed vigor for evangelism and a concern for the lost and all of these things that God's people are called to do and all things that become dulled when God's people are sleepy. Yes. That's good. Yes. <laughs> so what does all of this talk of revival then have anything to do with the series we're in? Where are you going? I asked myself that several times this week. I don't know, we'll see. But it's relevant because when we pray to God to do these kinds of mighty works, we're praying to Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, Last week, we looked at how Moses declared, the Lord is my banner. Saying, it's God that I am lifting up over my life. He prayed to the Lord and he trusted in him because God was his banner. But what about the Lord was he appealing to in that moment, in that prayer? It was Jehovah Sabaoth who moses pleads to for victory the lord of hosts it is the lord of hosts who does mighty works it is the lord of hosts who brings revival the lord who breaks chains and frees captives and renews hearts and minds the lord who has authority over the principalities and powers over this present darkness who is able to bring revival in a moment if he so chooses See Jehovah Sabaoth occurs 285 times in the Old Testament and it was a favorite name that was used by the Old Testament prophets when they were addressing God's people on his behalf when they spoke to God's people of his power of his might when they warned God's people when they called God's people to renewal and a return to the Lord it is a name that is rendered in some English versions as the Lord of Heaven's Armies the NIV Nick I got you renders it as the Lord lord almighty the root of Sabaoth means war it means warfare it means battle, army it is a name that describes the absolute power of our god and his ability to work on the behalf of his people interestingly the first time that this name is used in scripture it's used in 1st Samuel chapter 1 in the story of Hannah and the birth of Samuel and we covered this a couple of years ago in detail on mother's day But in this story, Hannah is deeply troubled because she is unable to conceive a child. And her burden is made all the more heavy by her husband's second wife, Peninnah, who was able to have several children. Peninnah was haughty. She was puffed up. And the story tells us that she added to Hannah's burden by provoking her grievously, presumably about her inability to conceive children, her infertility thinking that she was better than her, more blessed because she was able to conceive. Hannah's husband also added to her burden by not understanding her plight, questioning her about why she was so sad and not eating and not understanding what was going on her. And he, he provoked her further by saying, am I not more to you than 10 sons? It's not a good thing to say. Like I've shared before, Kate and I went through infertility for years. I can imagine if I went up to her and said, well, Kate, am I not more to you than 10 sons? That would not go over well, right? It shows a misunderstanding. Like, yeah, yes, I'm, a, I'm extremely valuable to Kate. I know that, but there's a longing on her heart for a child that cannot be replaced by me, right? It's a silly thing to say. And so Hannah is deeply distressed. And in her distress, she does the wise thing. She goes to the temple of the Lord she doesn't retaliate against her husband. She doesn't retaliate against Peninnah. She goes to the house of the Lord at Shiloh and she prays to the Lord of hosts. 1 Samuel one eleven. She says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head hannah appeals to the lord of hosts because she she knows she's appealing to the god who is able she's appealing to the almighty the one who can open her womb she uses that name and refers to armies and war and battles because she's asking god would you fight on my behalf go to war for me O lord Joyce Baldwin, when she writes about this, she says, For her, the power of the Lord of hosts was not confined to military exploits. She believed he knew all about her and could give her a son. Hannah brought her affliction to the one who would fight for her and who has all of the power and resources to bring triumph on her behalf. For God's... People, Jehovah Sabaoth is a reminder of the unceasing, incomprehensible capability of our Lord. Kate read for us Psalm 89, 5 to 14 at the beginning, which describes the power of the Lord of hosts, that he is the ultimate authority over all realms of creation, starting with the heavens. In verse 5 to 8, it says, Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord. Your faithfulness in the assembly of the Holy Ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the Holy Ones, and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. This is an awe-inspiring picture of our God. It is a glimpse into what is happening right now in the heavens. Verse 5 speaks of the assembly of the holy ones. This refers to the angels and the heavenly beings. And they are gathering together to praise God for his wonders. Recognizing there is no one like the Lord. That even amongst the angels, God is greatly feared. And you've got to think, if the angels greatly feared God, how much more should we... In the book of Job, it describes the authority of the Lord of hosts as the sons of God come before the Lord to present themselves to him like a commander doing a roll call or an inspection in the army. The heavenly hosts come before the Lord to get their marching orders and give account of their actions. This picture in Psalm 89 shows us our God commands legions of angels. He is over all of the authorities that we cannot even see or fathom. And this is Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. And he is also the Lord of hosts over all the earth psalm 89 verse 9 to 13 you rule the raging of the sea when its waves rise you still them you crushed rahab like a carcass you scattered your enemies with your mighty arm the heavens are yours the earth also is yours the world and all that is in it you have founded them the north and the south you have created them Tabor and Herman joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your high. Strong is your hand. High, your right hand. God rules in all authority over the heavens, as the Lord of hosts. He also rules in all authority over the earth. As the Lord of hosts. And verse 9 starts with this picture of the raging sea and its rising waves. And the sea is the most unpredictable part of the earth. It changes quickly with weather and wind. And so it's this this fitting picture that the psalmist gives us, highlighting that God is in control, even of the most unpredictable part of man's environment that we have absolutely no control over, that he is able to still the seas. And we see Jesus do this when his disciples thought that they were going to perish on the boat. He spoke and the seas calmed. In verse 12, the psalmist says, you created the north and the south, right? the most uninhabitable and tumultuous places on the earth, the North Pole and Antarctica. God rules over them. His power over nature is on display here. In verse 12, the psalmist also refers to Tabor and Hermon, likely used by the psalmist because Tabor was a relatively small mountain, only 1,900 feet High, it was where Deborah had her victory for the Israelites in Judges 4. And then there's Mount Hermon, who is over 9,000 feet high. God is the God of the lowly and the high as well. And then in verse 10, the psalmist says, You crushed Rahab like a carcass, you scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. This is not referring to Rahab the prostitute, Rahab was in reference to Egypt. Israel often, or sorry, Isaiah used the name Rahab to refer to Egypt as a nickname for it. And so in verse 10, the psalmist is reiterating that God is over his people, that he is over the nations, that he takes out the people's enemies, that he is over everything, and he is the one who brings victory as he brought victory over Egypt. What I'm trying to say this morning... Is that the Lord of hosts is our all powerful God who is almighty over creation, who is almighty over the heavenlies that we cannot see, who is almighty over people, over nations, over armies on earth and in heaven? This is the God that we come before. This is the God whom we pray to. This is the God whom we bring our intercession and our needs and our requests to. And this is the God whom when we pray, we believe that He is able to do far more than what we ask. And this is the God who is able to bring revival to His people, to awaken people's hearts, to cause the dead to come to life, to awaken the sleep. I just believe and I hope that he will do it. That we will see a fresh revival, fresh hunger for God in this place. And it will pour out of here. And it will impact those around us. If he wants to, he will do it because none can stay his hand.